Between the Banners, episode 14, second weekend of March Madness edition, or as we call it, the Carolina Invitational, or as most people call it, the Sweet 16 and the Regional Finals. My name is Chad Floyd. I am your host. I am joined tonight by two esteemed guests from the great white north. First, for the second time, Quentin Schwab up in upstate New York. Quentin, how are you? Good, sir. I'm doing well, Chad. Thank you. Uh, we hit 40 up here today, 40 degrees. So that's a, it's a good start. That's shorts weather, isn't it? Oh yeah. Uh, I've been sweating all day. Well, I mean, you've, you've got to, the body's got to purify itself at some point and, uh, 40 degrees is the breaking point up there from what I understand. Um, also on the phone from New Jersey, as far as I know still for now, uh, Jake Lawrence. Jake. What's going on, buddy? Yeah, man, still New Jersey for a few more weeks and uh, up here in the middle of, of Duke Blue Devil country, so it's kind of a living hell. Well, I mean, you are in Duke State, so what can you do? Just survive in advance. That's all we can do at this point. Absolutely right. And speaking of surviving and advancing, there are 16 teams left in the field. Um, Every sports media website that I visited this week had a ranking the Sweet 16 teams post in some way, shape, or form. Jake, how do you feel about those uh, Sweet 16 posts? I already know how Quentin feels. <laughs> uh, I didn't read a single one, I don't think. Um, I, I, I don't care for them. I don't think they mean anything. I think they're just fun clickbait for, for everyone else to, to feel like they're important or they're knowledgeable, but ultimately they're worthless. They are worthless, and uh Quentin, SB Nation's college basketball page actually had Gonzaga number one over Duke because they absolutely did bait me into clicking. Uh How do you feel about them, and would you reseed the uh tournament at 16 if given the opportunity? No, I definitely would not. I think that's one of the best things about March Madness is that the bracket is there and it doesn't change. Uh, I, you know, I was thinking of doing some sort of, uh, number crunching thing and, you know, taking the top eight outlets that were doing this piece and calculating the average ranking of each and showing, you know, that it precisely matched up with seeds. So what the heck is the point of this exercise? But I decided that was kind of a waste of time. And so here I am now and Gonzaga, I think that's, that's fair. I will point out that Sports Illustrated had Gonzaga number one, which was cool. And they had UNC two, I believe, which was awesome. And they, but apparently according to them, Kobe White has struggled against, uh, all the top competition this season and looked like a freshman. And you know, that's not exactly wrong, but he did interestingly have a great game against their number one team, Gonzaga. So I thought that was funny. Well, Sports Illustrated has been known to kind of auto-tweet things that don't make any sense. I saw um, Awful Announcing had a post on that today. So in that in this case, I will, I will take a Sports Illustrated post that has Gonzaga 1 and UNC 2 because uh, we, we've seen that play out on the court a couple times in the past few years. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you're right. Overall, they don't mean anything because, oh, you take all the ones first and then all the twos, and then what do you know? You got the threes. Um it's kind of fascinating that you see all of those hit every Monday after the first two rounds. Let's uh, break into just um, what we saw in the first weekend. I haven't spoken to either of y'all uh, on air about any of this, but 
Among the teams that have been eliminated, uh, Jake, what stood out the most to you? Um, I'm going to go ahead and continue my Ja Morant stand uh, position, although Florida State just murdered them. But what stood out to you about one of the 48 teams that's no longer here? Um, I think the lack of general upsets as a whole, and, and I don't mean that as a cop-out. We've kind of talked about it over the course of this year that um, – there was clearly well, we're getting some background noise from something now. Um, but there yeah, was shifting around. Uh, there were clearly about eight or nine teams that were the cream of the crop. You know, you could probably have a tier one and a tier two, uh, but uh, everything after that just seemed like a crapshoot. And so I really thought that we would see a lot more movement on the six line and the seven line, and even down to the four line a little bit, and we really didn't. Um, and I think that's what was surprising. I mean, no one really stood out to me except for John Morant and his unbelievable, unbelievable performance against Marquette. I mean, and that guy's, he's on a different level. I mean, that was impressive to watch what he did. But aside from that, I mean, we expected, I think that for the most part, chalk was going to win out down to the elite eight, but I didn't expect the chalk to win out seeds one through four in just about every bracket. I thought you see your top two seeds get through. With, with some more double digits that snuck through to the, to the Sweet 16 than what we have. And that was, that was really surprising to me. Yeah, I don't really consider a 7 over 10 or an 8 9 an actual upset as far as seeds go, just because those teams are also interchangeable. But you only had five double digit upsets. Um, that includes Ohio State over Iowa State, which power five on power five violence doesn't really count in this equation. Uh, Oregon over Wisconsin in the same way. And we'll get into that, but. Yeah, I mean, overall, it's just a really chalky bracket, probably the chalkiest I think I've ever seen. Uh, Quentin, what were your takeaways from week one of the tournament? And then we'll get into what we're looking forward to. Yeah, definitely along the same lines. A lot of chalk. Everyone had said all season it would probably be pretty chalky, but this is kind of beyond anything that we've seen before. Um I guess one thing that stood out is kind of boring, but that the one seeds struggled a little bit in their opening games, and then one of them in particular happened to struggle in their second game too. Uh, that was kind of interesting. I think it could be the psychological after effect of Virginia's loss or whatever, but I, I was, it was kind of interesting to see that. And then just to pick a couple teams in particular, I'll go LSU, uh, then making it through. I know they were favorite to make it to the Sweet 16, but they just hung in there with all that's going on with Will Wade, their coach, and the assistant coach drew up an excellent play to beat Maryland uh, pretty much at the buzzer. And the other team I would pick is Oregon because they are the one double-digit seed remaining, and I really love Peyton Pritchard. This guy is an absolute baller. You know, they were just a – everyone's kind of dissed the Pac-12 all season, put them to the side, and we saw that when UNC got matched up against the winner of that conference in the second round. Wasn't too much trouble, but it's cool to see Oregon in the second weekend. Yeah, I've always had a soft spot for Oregon. Um, I think my workout attire is pretty much styled after Oregon Ducks. Everything is either green or gray, and that plays into it a little bit. But they looked really good. I think they're healthy, really, for the first time all season, even though they're still missing a bowl bowl. But the task at hand is uh, the UNC-Auburn game. So we're going to start in the Midwest bracket. We will go ahead and break all four of them down in maybe a little less detail. But Carolina plays Auburn on Friday night. Um, 
just general thoughts. I'll keep it with you, Quentin. Just, you know, kind of what's your initial uh, feel on this game? Because for me, I mean, it, it just looks like it's going to be one of those up and down type games that Roy Williams famously typically does pretty well in. Yeah, that that sounds right. You know, I think most UNC fans, when they're, the team is set up against an opponent that likes to chuck threes, just naturally sort of says, oh, no, just because we're sort of used to the image of three-point shooters splashing, especially in the Dean Dome. Um, but that's actually, as you said, quite an ideal matchup. If they want to get running, I think Coach, Coach Roy Williams and UNC will have no problem doing that. Auburn is like an extremely inconsistent team sort of even stanza to stanza and not not to mention game to game as clearly shown in their first weekend they escaped uh absolutely escaped new mexico state and new mexico state helped them out a little bit with some questionable decision making at the end uh, and then they blew that doors off of kansas but this team is definitely something to be concerned with they are scary i thought they were underseeded and that they should have been the four and Kansas, the five, I think that is the very definition, textbook definition of a moot point right now. Hmm. Um, but this team, I know their guards are great. Uh, the Bryce Harper combination, uh, that would be Bryce Brown and Jared Harper. Uh, really both really quick. They average 15 points per game both. They can shoot from deep well. Uh, Jared Harper, uh, he looks a lot to me like Marlo Stanfield from The Wire, if you've ever seen that show, which definitely isn't a good thing for opponents. Opponents definitely do not want to look across and see someone who resembles Marlo Stanfield or gives off a Marlo Stanfield type of vibe. You definitely don't want that, but that's sort of a, that's sort of a joke. Um, they, they're a great team. I, you know, they had a great season. Their, their, their schedule, they somehow lost at state before any, anyone knew state was a division one ACC college basketball team capable of scoring 24 points in a 40 minute game. But I'll let that one pass. Their, their resume is strong. Uh, I love Charles Barkley. That's the last point I'll make. <laughs> <laughs> and. You know, Jake, I mean, just kind of going off of that, this is a team that's coming in hot. They've won eight straight. Uh, they won the SEC tournament. And, like, um, well, I guess they've won ten straight, actually. Um, yeah, I think it's ten. Yeah, and they beat the doors off of Kansas, like Quentin said. You know, what's your initial feel on this team? Um, I like the Bryce Harper uh, call there because those are really the two guys that I'm keyed in on. But uh, what are you keyed in on for this matchup? Um, well, I'm glad you asked, Chad. Uh, I am actually, by the time this drops, uh, I will have completed uh, the three things to watch for this game. Uh, and Quentin just, just nailed the, the Brown and Harper piece out, uh, out of the park. Um, <clears throat> the, the, the thing with, with that duo is outside of shooting, Brown doesn't really provide anything of tangible value. Um, and so, but Harper also averages 5.7 assists a game. So he's going to give you points and playmaking. Brown will give you shooting, but if he's not hitting, he doesn't give you anything. So it's kind of a pick your poison of how do you really want to, how do you want to address that and, and attack them defensively? Between the two of them, they are averaging almost 15 three pointers per game attempted. Um, so that's where the majority of their shooting is coming from, just those two players. So, um, 
just just a, a few more nuggets there to add with with what Quentin said. Uh, really, here's what I'm looking at, and I know we love Kobe White, and I love Kobe White, and he's a lot of fun to watch, and he has grown by leaps and bounds. But before his six for eleven shooting performance against Washington, when he was four or seven for, from three. He was only 15 for 45 in the previous three games from the floor. And he was three for 21 from three against Louisville, Duke, and Iona. That's not the kind of streakiness that a score first point guard can, that, that a team can depend upon when you have a score first point guard. Um, which Kobe White is going to show up? And if, if the cold shooting Kobe White shows up, can this team overcome a potentially hot shooting Auburn team? And I don't know the answer to that. Um, but I tweeted this out a couple of days ago in, you know, Kobe has played 28 games this year. He missed one game because of injury. When he contributes four or more assists, North Carolina is 18 and two. There are two losses to Michigan in the early part of the season. So take that for what it's worth. And then in the one point loss to Duke in the, uh, in the ACC tournament, uh, they are 10 and four in games when he has three or fewer assists. Um, Three of those wins were against Pittsburgh, Notre Dame, and Boston College, so not the toughest of competition. Uh, and against Elon and St. Francis were, were two of the other ones. So that's five of those ten wins when he has three or fewer. I think the key to this game really is going to be Kobe White's ability to get others involved and initiate the offense um, in a fast-paced environment. Um, that's what I'll be looking for from North Carolina standpoint. Uh, it is really hard to win a championship with a freshman point guard. It's really hard to make the final four with a freshman point guard. Roy Williams has never made the final four with a freshman point guard. Um, and for all the re- all the reasons we can say that Kobe is different and he's better and this is a different environment and it's a different mindset, the facts are where they are. And that has never happened before with a, with a Roy Williams point guard. So I think that is a place to, to, to watch this weekend, especially against a team as hot as um, – is Auburn, and if they start putting North Carolina in some trouble late, does this team respond the way they did against Miami and Clemson, where they were able to find the points and, and eke out the win, or is this the team that fails to execute down the stretch the way they did against Virginia and Duke uh, in the ACC tournament? I, that, to me, is what I'll be watching more than anything, if, if Auburn keeps it close. Yeah, and I kind of had the opposite uh, approach to that. With uh, Auburn's Bruce Pearl um, kind of attacking defense, I'm looking more at turnovers from uh, Kobe White and Seventh Woods, and can they keep those numbers within, you know, a reasonable range? Because at the end of the day, I mean, Auburn's looking to play at a pace possibly more frenetic than UNC's. They've got 10 guys averaging over 10 minutes a game. And what I look for is just, does, you know, the different play style kind of get to um, Kobe's inexperience, which, I mean, he's experienced 28 games, as you said, but then, um, you know, seven's relative inexperience just with his limited minutes over three years because there have been lapses for both players and a five-minute lapse could turn into a 15 nothing Auburn run really quick. Um, the other guy I kind of was interested in was, uh, Chuma O'Kaley. Um, he leads the team in rebounds, leads them in steals, barely doesn't lead them in blocks, but seems like a guy that could take advantage of some, uh, lazy entry passes if UNC does get into a half court game. But at the end of the day, Auburn is really bad at three point defense and really bad at rebounding on the defensive end. And those are two areas where Carolina feasts. So 
Pardon my uh, optimism here, but I really don't see Carolina having much trouble against Auburn. And if they do, it's we're, we're going to know it's trouble real quick. Um, Jake, I'll stick with you. What's your prediction for this game? Just gun to the head. You know, what, what does it look like? How does this thing play out? I think 92-70 North Carolina. I mean, I think they blow them out of the water. Um and and I say that because everyone's like, this is a bad matchup for Carolina. And you you nailed it, Chad. We'll know early if this is a bad matchup for, for North Carolina. You know, we're we're going to get that feeling pretty quickly. But the one thing Carolina has not done this year is they have not given up leads whenever they when they get out in front by eight or ten points. I mean, they don't they don't falter. Um, I think that you know the Duke game the only I think is the only real time that they that they they slowly lost their grasp over the course of the game. Um, <clears throat> so uh, we're going to know early, and if, if it's not like that, I think you're looking at a Gonzaga like a, a Gonzaga like performance, um, and I think that they I think they push I think they push it away, and uh, and, and they hold these guys off uh, by by two arm lengths. I, I, I'm not. I think this is a worse matchup for Auburn than it is for North Carolina. Um, I don't know who's saying that this is a bad matchup for UNC, but those people need to be checked out because. You know, when, when I look at this game, I say, man, that is the best possible matchup for UNC. Uh, Quentin, where do you stand on that? Because I'm a lot more optimistic about this than the nerves I would have if we were playing an underachieving Kansas team in Kansas City. Mm-hmm. That's definitely a good point. I think all of us to some extent are glad somewhere on some level inside of us that we didn't have to face Kansas. But... I'm not quite as optimistic, I think, as you two. A 20-some point win would be great, and it could definitely evolve like that, and I agree that we'll know early. But I'll I'll kind of piggyback off of Jake in that, you know, Kobe White, I just, I'm not sure this is going to be the game for those behind-the-back dribbles, uh, the kind of flinging cross-court passes type of thing. And I'm also concerned about him defensively because he continues to – to help off shooters. It, it seemed like he might have been better at some points during the season, but he's got the Joel Berry syndrome where he is helping off of shooters. And this team is no joke from the three-point line. If you think, for a comparison, if you think Cam, jo- Cam Johnson, uh, probably arguably UNC's best player, if you think he hoists up a lot of three-point shots, he's at under six attempts per game. And Bryce Brown is at almost nine attempts per game. His percentage is slightly lower than Johnson's or, or significantly. I guess 5% is a pretty decent amount, but they will chuck and, and they'll let fly. And so routinely, UNC perimeter defenders do not have a hand in the face of shooters. And it's something that kind of ebbs and flows throughout seasons. Right now, it seems to be relatively okay, although I will point out Kobe. Kobe against Washington a couple times just let that lefty, I think, was it crisp? That lefty guard, he just let him open routinely. He didn't knock down a absurd percentage. But it's just something that you got to be aware of. And then back to the offensive side, one last point. Just just throw up bad shots rather than turn it over. I, I really am a proponent of that. That's what I was screaming during the first half against the Huskies. You know, we're great. The UNC is a great offensive rebounding team. Um, Not the best difficult shot makers, of course, but just throw up some bad shots instead of turning it over. Uh, that's what they feast on. They turn opponents over, depending on your figures, 21 to 25% of possessions. 
which is absurd. I mean, that it's number one in the country, in fact. And that has me concerned that if everything goes ideally, sure, a 20-point win sounds right, but UNC might have to scratch and claw this one out. And I guess for me, uh, scratching and clawing just looks like a track meet, and I'm just going to take UNC's guys over uh, Auburn's, and we haven't really talked about much outside of the guards, but, you know, I mentioned Aku down low and uh, the other big guy whose uh, name escapes me. But Garrison Brooks and Luke May are better players than them. Uh, if May can replicate his performance from Sunday, you know, that would be huge. And then the X factor is UNC's best player by uh, by most measurements, Cam Johnson. I mean, if a team is the worst in the country at three-point defense and you have a guy shooting 46% from three, you know, get him those nine or 11 or 12 shots from beyond the arc and he can shoot UNC out in trouble. Um. There is the matter of the fact that uh, we will probably not have another podcast before UNC potentially plays on Sunday. And Kentucky and Houston are sitting on the other side of that bracket. The big storyline is that P.J. Washington is still, um, well, carting around and doubtful for the Sweet 16 game. Uh, Jake, where are you, where are you leaning just uh, on Kentucky-Houston? Because Houston's still a little bit of a mystery team for me. They are. I think they're more of a mystery because we just don't quite. I mean, they're in the AAC. Um, they made some noise, but they, they've kind of been on the on the fringe of the top teams all year. Uh, but they're a solid team, and Kelvin Sampson is is a solid coach, and he's a blue collar kind of guy when he's not getting caught by the NCAA for various infractions. So, um, you know, he's, he's in a he's in a location where he can fly under the radar. And look, we saw Wofford push Kentucky to the edge last week, and that was with. Fletcher McGee's arguably worst shooting performance of his entire life. Uh, and so you're, you're, you're putting a, a little bit tougher defensive, uh, Houston team up against, uh, a Kentucky team that's, that likely will be missing their, uh, their best player. Uh, I think Houston is right for, for this win. I, I picked them from the beginning, uh, to, to make the Elite Eight and, and I'm not going to waver from that. And I think not having PJ Washington is, is just, uh, makes that even more uh, definite in my mind. Mm-hmm. And and you did say on the uh, tournament preview podcast that you would take uh, Kelvin Sampson over John Calipari in a one game situation. You're still there, I'm assuming. I am still there, and I, I I can't believe I'm saying that. But when you look at it from a from a tactical standpoint, coaching standpoint, I mean, to me, coaching matters, and in game coaching matters. And I mean, who who was it at the the recruited Indiana was? It, I think Romeo Langford, who played for Calipari up in uh, up in Canada for one of the USA teams, and even mm-hmm. he said that that. He was, the Calipari was having issues, uh, with in-game coaching and it's a 17 year old at the time who said that. I mean, Calipari has a strength, uh, but give me Sampson over him, uh, in, in, in a one game playoff. And Quentin, where do you fall? Uh, this is a Houston team that did beat LSU by six points. Uh, they beat Oregon when Oregon was ranked early in the season by four. Um, it's not a team that's going to go away lightly. That's for sure. But. Where do you stand on uh, Houston versus Kentucky? And we'll get into who we'd rather see on Sunday. Yeah, I think this is a fascinating game. Actually, these teams happen to play at an identical pace, 67.6 possessions for 40 minutes. Uh, Very similar offensive efficiency. Uh, Kentucky is a slightly better overall shooting team. But both of these teams 
are I think they're both great teams. And Houston this season has lost at Temple in early January against UCF in the regular season finale and against Cincinnati in the American Conference Final. That's it. So if you're a Cougars fan, you interpret that as three losses to all NCAA tournament teams. If you're a little more skeptical, you interpret that as two of their three losses have come in the last three weeks. Uh, but I've been impressed with Houston from start to finish. It'd be Oregon, LSU, St. Louis, Utah State. I think they certainly deserve to be in the two-seed discussion the whole way. And if a couple of balls bounce their way the last weeks, last few weeks here, I don't know how they you couldn't have considered them for a one seed if you know they had stayed at two losses. Uh, I I think I'm going to take Houston. This team allows the lowest field goal percentage in the entire country and second lowest from three to, I think you know who, those guys up in Charlottesville. I, maybe I'm a little impressed at sort of my first dive into Houston statistics and overreacting to that, but I think if, if PJ Washington isn't playing, that isn't too outlandish of a pick at all. I'm going to go with the Cougars. And you bring in the defensive point, Quentin, and the same thing applies to Kentucky that applies to North Carolina, and they have, they're led by a freshman point guard. And now that freshman point guard may not have his best or, at the minimum, a depleted uh, uh, P.J. Washington there to, to help to help him out a little bit. Reed Travis can't carry that post all by himself. Um, he needs Washington there to play off of. Um, and so I, th- I think I think the Houston defense there is, is what puts them over the top. And just looking just purely at the uh, offensive stats page for Houston, the one concern for me about them is that they are fairly inefficient offensively. Um, their top volume shooters are at 42.4%, 40%, 41% from the field. Um, they're only guys only over 50% get about four shots a game combined. So I worry a little bit about them on the offensive end, but I think y'all are right in that if, Kentucky can frustrate, or if uh, Houston can frustrate them on the defensive end, this is just going to be kind of an ugly, sloppy game. And I think it's going to be, you know, low to mid-60s for each team come down to the wire. And UNC will play one of them on Sunday. Um, just real quick, I mean, w- w- without breaking it down too far in depth, uh, Jake, where would you stand on a UNC-Kentucky or a UNC-Houston matchup? On Sunday. Um, I would stand with Carolina winning either game. I think Houston would give them the tougher matchup. And I know that sounds really weird. Um, not from a talent level, but just from a not being a familiar with them level. Uh, and that kind of defense, I can see it throwing a wrench in North Carolina's offensive plans. With Kentucky, North Carolina's played them once. They've seen them. Yeah, it was an eight-point loss. Yeah, it was probably a little bit worse than that if anyone was watching the game. But at the same time, it was only an eight-point loss. And we know that how much better this team is now than it was in December. Uh, and I think they would have fared better against Kentucky than they would against Houston. I think they would beat both of them. But Houston concerns me more just because of the lack of familiarity. Yeah, I think I would agree with you on that. And that I would be uh, – I'm going to be nervous, a nervous wreck on Sunday either way. Quentin, where do you stand? Who would you rather face? And would you pick Carolina to beat both teams? 
Yes, I'll pick them to beat either team. I mean, we really should probably have a little bit more disagreement on this, but uh I think <laughs> Houston is probably a, a little more frightening. I mean, if you want to go on kind of silly arbitrary things like pedigree, then I think most fans would say, yeah, give, give me Houston instead of Kentucky. But Kentucky is a different team than they were at the beginning of the year. And I'm not, I'm, I, they were, I mean, at the very beginning of the year, they got destroyed by 34 points to Duke. We know that. And I think that kind of set the, set the frame their season. And so they had kind of had an uphill battle to gain respect until about late January, early February or so. Houston, I, well, no, I but, you know, sorry, go ahead, Jake. I was just saying, well, no, you, you bring up a good point though. I mean, you look at the record and, you know, they beat Mississippi State by four. They beat, Missouri by eight. They beat Arkansas by four. They beat Mississippi by four. Uh, they eked out against Florida by nine. Um, they just beat Walker by seven. I mean, the last, the last month, maybe five weeks or so, um, they, I mean, they were lucky to escape with some of those wins that they did. So you're absolutely right. They are a different team. Their only losses have been to LSU and Tennessee since, you know, early January, but they have had some battles, uh, and they're vulnerable, uh, against, uh, and this is coming from an SEC that, Depends on what you usually think about the SEC. And I think that it's clear this year they were, they were down a little bit. Um, and, uh, I, I'm not sure that they are the powerhouse people think they are just because I think the SEC helped mask some problems and they got out of some close games late that they, they may be not, they may not get out of in a neutral court environment, um, in the NCAA tournament. And yeah, that, that I go ahead, go ahead, Chad. I was going to say, I kind of had the opposite approach about the SEC. This is the first time in a while I can remember, you know, it having more than one or two teams that could challenge Kentucky at all. And, you know, from that, I I don't think the SEC is by any means the ACC or, uh, as I hold back my gag reflex, the Big Ten. But it was a fairly solid conference, just kind of a stars and scrubs type deal where, you know, I, I don't think Kentucky went unchallenged this year, but, um, you know, having close games against the Georgias and the South Carolinas of the world is a different story than the Mississippi States and the LSUs. But, uh, Quentin, you had a point there. Yeah, I think w- one thing that might be fair to point out to Kentucky is that that loss to LSU and Rupp was, you know, if you, if you let it come down to a two-point game, then whatever. But that was an absolute robbery on the final goaltending call. So maybe, maybe add one, you know, that would have gone to overtime at best, so who knows. Um, but I think, you know, I also, I don't think we can get out of this podcast without mentioning the fact that, you know, we, we superstitious folks like, would love for 2019 to follow 2017 and lose to Kentucky before, a few days before Christmas in a neutral court pre, you know, preseason tournament type thing and then beat them in the Elite Eight. So who we got for the game-winning shot? Playtech? Yes, you had to go with the sophomore white guy, Playtech. Damn. There we go. 100%. Not even going to hesitate. Give give him his chance on the final minute if it comes down to that. You realize you're getting us all fired right now. I, hey, you know what? I don't care. I don't care. You got if we're going to go if we're going to go that far with the superstition, you got to go all out. Play on, play as they say, and in this case kind of works for uh Playtech. Um, and I guess it works for two because we did have to beat Villanova on the way to 05 and 09. And the next time we saw Villanova, it didn't work out quite so well. So 
Yeah, screw it. Let's let, let's uh let's have a playtech game winner if uh, we run into Kentucky. God, I I mean <laughs> twice I had to hold back. All right. Um, got you to say it. Thank you very much, Chad. Oh man, yeah. Now I'm fired. Um, <laughs> South Regional. We've got Virginia. We've got the one double-digit seed, Oregon. Actually, the only seed higher than five left in the tournament. Um, Purdue and Tennessee on the uh, other end of that one. Those games are going to take place tomorrow night. Well, I guess maybe tonight as you listen to this. Um, Purdue and Tennessee opens up the uh, festivities in Louisville. Okay. In Louisville, Kentucky. Um, Quentin, what, what's your initial uh, Tennessee-Purdue thought? Uh, Carson Edwards has emerged as a legitimate beast and maybe the John Morant of week two of the tournament here. Yeah, are you are you asking the guy who picked Old Dominion? <laughs> yeah, I am. Uh, yeah, no, I like uh, Purdue. I think I agree with what you said on our Slack channel a week or two ago. It, it must be the boring colors, their the name Boilermakers or whatever it is. I've just never been too fascinated with. But obviously, I was wrong about that. Carson Edwards is, is unbelievable. Seeing a potential Final Four matchup between him and Kobe White would be fascinating. I don't think it's going to happen, though. I like Tennessee. Give me Tennessee as much as as detestable as Rick Barnes can be at times. I like Grant Williams a lot. I think he's a great leader and playmaker. Bone. Admiral Schofield, the best name in all of sports. And he removed himself from a game, which I thought was it was kind of a big story. Not that big of a story. He didn't get quite as much play as I thought. But he benched himself for overtime after they blew the 25-point lead to Iowa. And I thought, I don't know, I, that's, I just wanted to bring that up. I thought that was cool. And I also think that woke them up. You know, they almost lost their tournament. I think they'll be refocused, re-energized. N- not too long of a trek for either team to Louisville, but give me the balls. All right. And Quentin has the balls. Jake, what do you see in this matchup? Um, I know on last week's pod, I've, Switched gears and uh, randomly put Purdue in the Final Four, so I'm going to ride with that. But I don't really have any more insight than that. I don't remember who I put from this bracket in the Final Four anymore. I think I put Tennessee, um, but I could understand Purdue. But I have completely changed my tune, and I'm going to put it like this: I don't need to talk about this about this region anymore. Give me Oregon in the Final Four, and I'm going to ride with that. And here's my reasoning: uh, Tony Bennett. Rick Barnes and Matt Painter, the three coaches of the other three teams in the, in that bracket, the one, two, and three seed. I think if I did my math right, they've got 42 combined NCAA appearances. Between the three of them in those 42 tournaments, they have one final four and two elite eights between them. And that's it. That ratio Um, is not good. And considering that they have been at, 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 Power Conference schools, uh, Clemson, Texas, Providence, Washington State, uh, Tennessee, Virginia, um, Purdue. It, that, I mean, to me, I think at some point coaching matters. There is one coach in that bracket that has been to the Final Four. That is Dana Altman. So give me him out of the entire bracket, and that's all i got to say about the South. I will just uh, throw in the point that Oregon was fifth in defensive efficiency uh, for the season this year. Most of that came without uh, their seven foot three minute bowl offspring. So I was actually going to make the hot take 
I was going to fire the take can and take Oregon over Virginia at least, just because that's going to be a kind of a knockdown drag out game where I trust Oregon's guards more than Virginia's. Um, yeah. Jake, you just stole my thunder, man. I, and I, I make, I, I make apologies. I'll make it up to you at some point, but I'm glad we're on the same wavelength on this. Hey, man. You know, some, sometimes, uh, great minds think alike. Uh, Quentin, you want to step in and tell us why we're idiots? <laughs> yeah, sort of. Because they'll lose in the Elite Eight, of course. Uh, no, you know, Virginia, if Oregon does happen to beat Virginia, which, I mean, I don't, I don't consider that impossible at all. We're really gonna have to wonder how in the world UVA has lost four combined games in the Atlantic Coast Conference for the last two years, regular season and tournament combined, four games. And yet, can't beat UMBC or Oregon when it all matters. I mean, we, I, I, I guess it's actually not that big. We all know the reasons, but wow, if that does happen, that'd be great. Go Ducks. That'd be awesome. But I've got, uh, I've got Tennessee over UVA in the Elite Eight. They are, that's a Thursday, Saturday, right? I think. Yes. Or am I wrong? Yes. Yeah. So Saturday, Saturday night, I've got Tennessee over Virginia. And that's a perfectly rational take to have and probably, I mean, more likely to be the correct one, obviously. But maybe it's fun to dream. Maybe it's fun to still trash Tony Bennett in Virginia. I don't know. Um, it's kind of the opposite of like the Navy triple option effect where, you know, in conference teams have seen you and they kind of adjust, whereas – they, Virginia in the ACC just seems to have some kind of an aura where, you know, I, I, w- I guess you would uh, maybe put it on the ACC refs, but that's another topic for another day. Uh, East Regional, Michigan State, LSU, Duke, Virginia Tech. Uh, this is the Friday, Sunday. We have uh, LSU, Michigan State first. And I'm just going to say I'm not a believer in uh, LSU. Michigan State's going to win that game. Although... I could be talked out of that pretty easily. So, Quentin, talk me out of that. No, I'm not going to talk don't. you out of that because I don't think it's – I don't think we're going to get a remake of 2006 with Big Baby Davis and LSU knocking off Duke. That would be great. But I think MSU is going to win, and then I think UCF is going to continue their Cinderella – wait, wait, what? Never mind, sorry. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> I think Duke's going to get by Virginia Tech. That'll be interesting. What my, one of my the best things I saw non actual basketball this weekend related to the tournament was an interview with Kerry Blackshear on Virginia Tech right after they beat Liberty to advance to the Sweet 16. And the sideline reporter asked him, you know, it's going to be different, you know, this time obviously with Zion back than when you beat them in late February in Blacksburg. And he said, oh yeah, it's definitely going to be different. We've got Justin Robinson back too. And that was great to hear. I hope they can turn it into, Something real. They they knocked down about forty percent of their threes, but I'm not quite sure it's going to matter. Uh, and then the Elite Eight, absolutely picking with my heart. Give me Arthur, also known as Tom Izzo, against Duke in the Elite Eight to get to the Final Four. And I hope you get the Arthur reference. That was from when he balled up his fist at that freshman player. <laughs> and just for the record, I have absolutely no problem with that because that is the way Michigan State operates their program and has for the past 20 years. Um, Jake, where are you at on this bracket? 
Uh, full stop. Um, uh, I think Michigan State comes out of it, but let me put it this way. I think regardless, the winner is going to come out of the LSU-Michigan State game. Uh, I think that's their final four team. Um, LSU has the athleticism to handle everyone else remaining in that bracket. And they, I think they have enough inexperience and brashness and youth to them uh, to where they they can just block out the noise, uh, similar to um, uh, I was I, the first first thoughts that came to mind were the Fat Five when they were so young and so brash they didn't know any better but to be so good. Um, obviously, just from an attitude standpoint, that's kind of what I look at them as. And with everything that's going on in that program, um, it is clear that they have they did not disintegrate. They went the opposite way and they've gotten tighter. Uh, they've gotten more close, and I think that's big. Um, or give me Michigan State because I think guard play matters, and I think Cassius Winston is unbelievable. Um, and I know that I know that Izzo has struggled against Roy and Kay throughout his career, um, but I would love to see all the national talking heads explode over the way Izzo coaches, um, just because I think they're all idiots if they have issues with it. And I I, I like a good laugh. So um, give me either one of those two teams, and I don't have a preference on on which one it is. I don't have a preference on them either. I think Duke comes out of the bracket, but I think Virginia Tech makes them sweat, and I think Michigan State really makes them sweat. Um, Cassius Winston is going to be a serious problem for Trey Jones. Uh, he's good enough to where Trey Jones's defensive uh, accolades are not going to really matter. And the most fascinating thing that I saw in the first weekend of the tournament was how UCF committed completely to playing five on three in the second half and allowing Jones and Anthony Goldwire to shoot. Uh, they got burned on it twice, but I think that is a strategy to just completely throw Duke off their game. And it's really hard to score actually when you're going against 1.2 people as opposed to just one. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know why I think this is just kind of a little bit of Duke aura setting in. But I get a weird feeling that LSU is going to knock off Michigan State and Duke's going to take advantage of the inexperience for those programs in Virginia Tech and LSU in advance of the Final Four. But I hope I'm wrong. Let's go out to Completely Anaheim. Logical. Yeah. Oh, well, everything I say is logical. Um, You're right. I'm sorry, Chad. You're right. Yeah. The narrator would note that everything I say is not logical. Out <laughs> Out in Anaheim, California, we have another one, two, three, four. Gonzaga, Florida State, Texas Tech, Michigan. This is your Thursday, Saturday. Quentin, Gonzaga, Florida State. Knowles, baby. Give me the Knowles. This, huh? this is probably my hottest take, I guess, remaining of the tournament is FSU is going to be TTU in the lead eight to go to the final four. Uh, this is, Talk about size. Yeah, this is athletic, length, big guys all around. Gonzaga will definitely be looking for revenge from last year's Sweet 16 loss without Killian Tilly, who was a pregame scratch from that game. And Was he ever healthy? <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah, he, he doesn't seem to be healthy often. I, did he play in the national title game, or was he? I can't even remember. Anyway, I, uh, yeah, I like the Knowles. I, I like Leonard Hamilton than I think a lot of people do. He, I think Terrence Mann, his playmaking has been unbelievable so far this tournament. And the Knowles are gonna, if 
finally I think I think after this year they make the final four. It's not like they're going to suddenly be treated as a blue blood, but you know, they could enter sort of Michigan type territory. I think Leonard Hamilton has them on their way there. I like the uh, boldness of the take there because Florida State really, to me, seems, well, they are the fourth seed. Um, but I would probably have them in a very close game with Michigan, but I feel like their variability is just a little bit higher than most of the teams. Uh, Jake, where do you see this bracket shaking out? Because for the record, I have Gonzaga edging Texas Tech in a very close game. I think Gonzaga is the best or second best or third best team in the field. Probably second best. Yeah, I had, I originally had Texas Tech in the final four, uh, and I'll stick with that, uh, just because I picked it in the beginning, um, and there's no reason to change it at this point. Um, but looking at it, I'm not sure they have enough offensive firepower to overcome Michigan and then Gonzaga. Um, uh, cause I think Gonzaga is going to beat FSU. And so to me, I'm looking at an elite eight of, of the Zags versus Texas Tech. And Texas Tech is unbelievable defensively. I think they would give uh, Gonzaga fits. But I don't think they can maintain enough of an offensive pace to to take out Gonzaga. And um, I understand the FSU love. I understand wanting to see them do well. Uh, I never have been a believer in Leonard Hamilton um, whatsoever. And so uh, I think that Gonzaga gets the revenge from last year. Um, and it would not surprise me at all to see them um, go on to the final four, but I'm going to stick with Texas Tech because I'm stubborn and I'm a man of my word, and we're going to go with that. I respect it. And last week I had, uh, Texas Tech coming out of the region. I did a last minute bracket on which I have money on Thursday morning, and I have Gonzaga winning the whole damn thing. So I'm going to stand for Gonzaga here. I like it. I can respect that. You got to, got to go after the money. That's right. Well, uh, gentlemen, as far as it goes, Jake, you already mentioned that you have the uh, three things coming out here on Thursday morning. Um, anything else that you've got to put a plug in for? Um, no, I, earlier this week, well, I lied. So, yes, earlier this week I did a film breakdown in Nasir Little um, and why he was able to do, do so well against Washington. Um, I've stayed away from a lot of that this year because he's had so much hype on him as it is, and there's a lot that goes on that we don't know about. But uh, this game, there was a lot of really positive things from him that people may not have realized. So I try to break that down a little bit. So go check that out. And we did not mention him once previewing the Auburn game, but I think he comes up huge just in an up-and-down environment like we're going to have. Uh, Quentin, what do you have coming to the site this week or anytime soon? Uh, I don't know if I have anything coming up scheduled. Yeah, I, people out there might even wonder if I, I write for the box. No, I'm kidding. I <laughs> had, so I did have the player of the game article for the victory over Washington to advance to the 316, and that was Nasir Little, who you just mentioned. I think he's, his development's going great. One piece of advice I would have for him if I was a coach, I think for the rest of this tournament, however long it is, hopefully four games, just ditch the mid-range jump shot traditional thing and just do those push shots they work a little they seem to work a little bit better they're quicker uh he he, i don't think he gets it blocked nearly as much he gets a lot of shots blocked uh but that that's what i'll go with let's go Nas. i love it and as for me um 
this is basically my baby now, but um, I did write a Hey, You Should Go to Spring Game article uh, that posted yesterday on Tuesday, so go check that out or come see me on April 13th in Chapel Hill at Keenan Stadium. Aside from that, subscribe to this podcast. It's really easy to do if you're listening to it. Go to Apple Podcasts, go to Stitcher, go to wherever you are listening to your podcast. Hit subscribe, preferably on Apple Podcasts, and leave us a five-star review on that there site. I will read it on the air. Until next time, hopefully we'll be talking about a Final Four North Carolina team. Go Heels, and we'll talk to you soon.